0: And to Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin our study of his word today. Father, we're thankful that we have the opportunity to study your word. For in your word you tell us who you are We come to understand your character. We understand your righteousness, your justice, your love. We understand how it is expressed to us through your grace. We come to understand the multiple dimensions of our salvation, all of the ways in which you have provided a solution to the multifaceted uh, corruption that has come into the human race because of sin. Father, we understand that it's not by anything that we do. It's not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but it's according to your mercy that you saved us. And, Father, we recognize that 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 is true for every single human being. There is none that does good, no, not one. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the truths of the gospel this morning and the significance of the fact that you have... Uh, decreed that there will be an eternal condemnation for those who do not believe in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you want to open your Bible somewhere, open them to the passage we've been studying in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, we'll just be touching on it at the beginning briefly in order to establish a framework for what I want to talk about this morning. During the last week since I covered this last Sunday morning, I had two questions raised that uh, needed some clarification, and I decided that they were close enough in in uh, content that I wanted to address them as as one particular doctrine this morning, understanding what the Bible teaches about eternal judgment. Eternal judgment is not a popular doctrine anymore. Uh, Not that it was ever a pleasant doctrine, but it was a true doctrine. It's a biblical truth that is, for many people, especially of a modern mindset, quite unpleasant. Up until about 200 years ago, there was hardly anyone within biblical orthodoxy that held to any other position other than eternal, unending, conscious torment for those who were unsaved and eternal bliss in heaven for those who are saved, who have trusted in Christ as Savior. But in the last 200 years, due to several influences, this has become unpopular. Unpopular. Now, it is still the primary view of most doctrinal statements. It's still the primary view of most evangelicals and of most fundamentalists. However, in the last few years, there have been a number of, uh, uh, of pastors, known evang- I put this in quote, evangelical pastors, but some that are truly in other areas of their theology pretty orthodox there have been a number of well-known british theologians who have taken a position that that uh, is known that we'll get into known as annihilationism that that while there may be a long maybe an unbelievably long time of of punishment it is not forever and ever one of the things you should understand whenever you read about this from the lips of British evangelicals is that there are very few British evangelicals that hold, it's just not their tradition to hold to a firm view of, of uh, inspiration, verbal plenary inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture like we have in the United States. Even someone like C.S. Lewis would not hold to the same view of the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture that we would hold to. Uh, this just has not been a tradition within the British evangelical camp. And so as a result of the fact that they don't have quite as high a view of Scripture, they have problems when it comes to some areas. But this isn't restricted to a few well-known names within uh, British evangelicalism. It's true in different areas uh, in the United States. And this has led to a certain degree about of um, confusion about what the Bible teaches about eternal condemnation. And because of the drift of our culture over the last 200 years, there are many evangelicals who have shifted to some degree Uh, and the emphasis in their gospel presentations because they really don't want to talk about the fact that if you reject Christ, then you're going to uh, be in in unending torments, fiery torments in the lake of fire forever and ever. There is a modern cultural concept of a loving God that somehow dominates the thinking of even unbelievers and it raises this specter that somehow God gleefully is uh, enjoying the torments of the unsaved. And we a lot of people just don't know how to handle that. So because they would rather focus on the positive in terms of salvation, they somewhat minimize the negatives of the condemnation. However, that has a couple of negative consequences, not the least of which is it diminishes our passion to give the gospel to the lost, to give the gospel to those who are on a fast track to a horrible eternity. And so we don't think about that. Recently, I read a biography on C.T. Studd. I've mentioned him once uh, recently. Stud was a remarkable man. Now, we would have some problems with his theology because he was one of a group of, uh, of missionaries and leaders that came out of British, uh, British evangelicalism in the late 19th century that was heavily influenced by what was known as Keswick theology or Victorious Life theology. And it was heavily imbued with a certain level of mysticism. And for, and we would not agree with that. Uh, there were perhaps some other aspects of his theology that, uh, we would not agree with, but he was a young man, as a young man, he and his two brothers, uh, grew up in a sports environment. This was at the very birth of the whole modern sport, sports and athletic focus. It was just beginning to take off, uh, in England, and at, when they were in high school, what we would call high school in England, uh, he was the third oldest of the, of the, three brothers, Uh, they were known, and they in high school at one particular point, they were all in high school together, and they played on the cricket team, and it received national recognition in Britain. Then they went to Cambridge, and at one point they were all on the Cambridge cricket team, and CT was the best of the three. And he looked forward to an incredible career as a cricket player. For us, that would be somebody coming out of high school and then coming out of college as, as a Heisman Trophy winner, somebody who had a tremendous career in front of them. And he made almost front-page news. He and six other members uh, or six other students at Cambridge who were all in different uh, athletics and, nat- and had gained national recognition because... They had become believers while they were in university, and they were going to give their lives to Christ on the mission field, and they were going to go to China and to spend their lives uh, in obscurity rather than embracing the fame and fortune that would have been theirs as, as athletes in England. And they would, in some cases, even give their lives for the gospel to take it to the uh, unbeliever. And he spent his early career in China, and then later he went to Africa. And one of the things that motivated Stud was that he would have dreams at night where he envisioned thousands upon thousands of black Africans going off to the Lake of Fire because they were desperately in need of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for him, The reality of eternal damnation for the lost was so real that it spurred him to incredible sacrifice and incredible incredible devotion to the gospel and to spend his life in ways that would be so foreign to many of us who have grown up with so many creaturely comforts that we can't imagine it his doctors told him as just before he went to uh, Africa in fact everyone prohibited him from going no one wanted him to go because his health was of such a state due to asthma due to malaria due to heart conditions that he would not last a year in Africa but he lasted 18 years and when you read of the the, the difficulties that he faced and surmounted and when he died 18 years later, he left a huge missionary organization in Africa that quickly quadrupled in size, and they were sending missionaries to Central America, to South America, to India, and to China. And in fact, he was one of those great pioneer missionaries from the late 1800s to his death in 1931 that opened up Africa to the gospel. But one of the things that motivated him was that Clear reality of the eternal condemnation of those without Christ. So we live in a day now of relativism, a day of confusion, a day when people, even among people we expect to be really sharp and precise on Scripture, to fudge, no pun intended, you'll know what I mean in a minute, on some of these areas. We have a. Um, one example in a book that came out about four or five years ago by a well-known pastor, especially if you're among the uh, sort of the youth generation, the emergent church generation, a pastor who used to pastor a church up in uh, one of the large mega churches up in Michigan by the name of Rob Bell. And his book was called Love Wins, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived. And when it hit the mainstream press, He was interviewed on morning talk shows, he was interviewed on Fox, he was interviewed on even ABC, Good Morning America, because he held to a view of universalism, that eventually everybody is going to end up in heaven. He rejected the notion or had problems with the notion of eternal punishment. But that's just a tip of the iceberg. Even here in Houston, this explains my pun a minute ago, uh, even here in Houston, we hit uh, national and church history prominence in 1982 when a former Church of Christ minister here in Houston by the name of Edward Fudge published a book entitled The Fire That Consumes, where he argued that Uh, that there was not eternal condemnation to those who were lost, but that they would eventually be, uh, just be destroyed. They would, their, their souls would be annihilated, but there would not be eternal everlasting punishment. So his view, that view, it's not unique to him, it goes back into the early church, is called annihilationism. The view that eternal punishment isn't really eternal, that the unsaved will eventually be obliterated and no longer exist. The problem for them is the nature of eternal punishment. They just think that this doesn't fit with the character of God, it doesn't fit with the Bible, and they recoil from it. For many of them, they are asking what I believe was one of the original Uh, original rebuttal statements of Satan to God's condemnation of Satan and the angels who followed him when they rebelled in eternity past. Ezekiel chapter 28 verses 12 and following, and especially Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, give us a description of that original fall of Satan when he disobeyed God. And God gave him a time period uh, wherein he would be a, he was allowed to uh influence as many angels as he could and we know that approximately a third of the angelic host followed him in his rebellion and there must have been some sort of trial some sort of judgment where these rebels were brought before the throne of God's judgment and a sentence was passed upon them. And we get a picture of this in Matthew 25, verse 41. This is stated in the middle of a judgment, a parable that Jesus told that t- tells us about the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Sheep referring to those who would be believers, and goats those who were unbelievers who would be sent to the lake of fire. And this is how Matthew puts it in Matthew 25:41. He said, then he, he will also, Jesus is, he's talking about Jesus, then he will also say to those, that is the judge, God will say to those on the left hand, depart from me you cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now we'll come back and look at this in a, a minute in terms of some of the other details, but the key word that I want to focus on right now is that word prepared. That word prepared is the Greek word etoimazo, and it's in the perfect tense in the, in the grammar. Now, when you use a perfect tense, what you're talking about is some event that it happened in past time. The key word is it refers to completed action, not something that is uh, where you're just referring to something in terms of its past action and maybe continuing into the present, but this is talking about a completed past action. It's over with. And so this indicates that that the everlasting fire, the lake of fire, was created, and that creation was completed at some time in the past, and Jesus is talking about this at his first advent, so this would be sometime uh, preceding the creation of man. It was prepared for the devil and his angels, so it wasn't created for human beings, It was created as an as a punishment for angels. Now the reason I point that out is uh some one of the arguments that is used by by those who reject the idea of eternal never ending punishment is that they say, Well human beings uh were not designed to be to be eternal. But you see, the lake of fire was created not for human beings. But for angels, it is a never-ending punishment. Angels do do not have or go through physical or corporeal uh, death so that this was created to be a never-ending punishment. Another question we should ask is, if this was created in eternity past for the devil and his angels, why aren't they there? If God created the prison, if God created the punishment... For the angels, why didn't he put them there then? And it seems that one of the most likely explanations, because the Bible doesn't expressly state this, but this is inferred from a number of things in the Scripture, is that there must have been an objection And there have been different ways in which people have formulated this objection. I've tried to put them all together, and I believe it went something like this, that that Satan is saying something along the lines of the current objections that we hear about never-ending punishment, that how can a just God send his creatures to the lake of fire? Uh, The punishment must fit the crime. And a crime of never-ending punishment seems to be much more severe than any sin or any act of disobedience. Uh, another form of that argument that we'll uh, look at is the argument that God is love. So Satan perhaps also said, how can a God who loves his creatures send those creatures to spend an eternity in never-ending fiery torments. And perhaps uh, 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 as, as Satan raised this objection, God decided, why he decided to do this, we don't know, we don't get a picture into these issues. God decided to create a, an object lesson, the human race, in order to demonstrate why this punishment was so serious, that it was a punishment that fit the crime and that as a punishment that fit the crime, it was perfectly compatible with with both his justice and his righteousness as well as his love. Because in in many ways, when modern man looks at love, we we look at a crime. We want to love the criminal. We forget about loving the victim of the crime. We always want to direct our love in the wrong direction and say, well, you know, we can let them off in five or six years because they committed mass murder. We need to improve them. We need to love them. That's, that's love directed towards the criminal. But it's not love directed towards the rest of society that may become victims of his criminality. It's not love towards the victims of his previous crimes. It is a pseudo love. It is a, an anemic concept of love, but that's what characterizes a lot of modern culture. One of the most difficult terms to define rather than describe is love. Even the Bible describes the characteristics of love in 1 Corinthians 13, but doesn't really uh, define it. If you look love up in the dictionary, it talks about love as being an emotion, but the Bible does not treat love as an, as an emotion, it treats love as a mental attitude, a mental focus upon the object of love, and the one who loves is concerned about doing the best for the object of love. Not what's best for the one loving, that's a self-centered love, but understanding with an objective standard that the one you love, you want the best for them, you want them to improve, you want them to uh, rise to the highest level of hopes and expectations for them. Uh, When they do wrong, you want them to learn the lessons from doing wrong, as harsh as that may be at times. Parents who are so overprotective of their children out of what they think is love are actually hurting their children because their children aren't being prepared to assume responsibilities for both success and failure when they become adults. So under a concept of pseudo-love, parents often are overprotective and spoil their children and protect them from ever experiencing the consequences of their bad decisions. That is a superficial, shallow, anemic kind of love that is not uh, part of the biblical pattern of love. So the nature of eternal punishment is often viewed by modern man as being incompatible with the character or the essence of God. So there are two solutions that are offered. The first is called universalism, and that's the view that everybody's going to end up in heaven. Even those who are the wicked or the unbeliever, they may go through a period of punishment, but then they will be released and they too end up in heaven. So this is the view that eventually all human beings will find their rest in God and spend eternity in heaven. Now, the second option is called annihilationism. This is the view that eternal punishment isn't really eternal, but that the unsaved will eventually be obliterated and no longer exist. They may be punished for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, but at some point it's going to end and they will just be obliterated and go into uh, non-existence. Now, when we look at this whole issue of divine judgment, what is the most common word that people think of when they think of the destiny of the unsaved? It's the word hell. We often hear people say, well, go to hell. We um, talk about hell freezing over. Uh, a lot of terms like that. But but these are fuzzy terms, really, when it comes to theology. In fact, I, you'd be surprised if I told you who it was. I read a document yesterday from someone who is a good friend of mine and probably should know better. I think he did this a long time ago, but he constantly referred in this article about hell, that he had written on hell, on, on, on eternal punishment to the lake of fire as hell. This is a great mistake. See, this is part of the problem with dealing with this biblically is that we have to clarify our language and vocabulary. The English word hell is derived actually from the German, the Dutch, and probably the Old Norse. According to Chambers' Dictionary of Etymology, the English word may be in part from Old Norse hell, H-E-L, which uh, in Norse mythology was the name of Loki's daughter. Loki is kind of the evil... um, evil god the messenger who's always fighting thor if you like the thor movies that's his half brother and and uh, you kind of connect that but his daughter's name was hell and she is the one who ruled over the evil dead in Niflheim, the lowest of all the worlds and then the dictionary says it was the transfer of a pagan concept and word to a christian idiom so the word hell isn't an accurate reflection of either of the greek or hebrew words for what it normally stands for which is gehenna that is how it is predominantly used in the new testament but in the old testament in the old testament it is predominantly a translation of the hebrew word sheol when you get into the New Testament, it is predominantly the translation of the Greek word Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom. Now, I went through a number of studies on the Valley of Hinnom and Gehenna as not a reference to eternal uh, eternal punishment in fiery torments, but as a depiction. Of divine judgment in time, because the Valley of Hinnom uh, in the Old Testament period was the location of Israel's greatest sin, where they immolated—that means they burned alive their infants in the arms of Moloch, who was a Moabite god, who who was the god of fire, and this is how they would placate this god: is to put their babies their live infants into his arms. There's a furnace there, and their children would be burned in the arms of Moloch. And God brought judgment on Israel. That was part of the reason he judged Israel and took them out, destroyed them as a nation in five eighty-six BC. And in we in the passages we read in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, God used this location of Hinoam to be the place where the dead would be buried When the Babylonians came in and slaughtered hundreds, thousands of Jews, they were buried in that same location. So that the valley of Hinnom became an idiom for a place where God brought judgment on Israel in time, not in eternity. So it's that concept. But hell not only translates Gehenna, it is also used in a number of passages to translate Hades, Hades. For example, in the King James Version, in Matthew 11, which we studied last week, reads, And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shalt be brought down to hell. But in the Greek, it's Hades. Now, Hades is a totally different concept in Scripture than the lake of fire. And it's a different concept from Gehenna. These need to be distinguished, but too often the translators of Scripture blur these things together and it leaves people with just a basic uh, basic confusion. Now, according to Luke 16, 19-25, which is the story of Lazarus and the rich man, uh, the, Lazarus is a homeless person, a beggar outside the house of so the rich man, the rich man ignores him, Lazarus dies, and he is said to go to Abraham's bosom on the left or paradise. When the rich man dies, he goes to the place of torments, a place where there are fiery torments, for he says to Abraham, please let 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 Lazarus come and dip his finger in the in the water, there's uh, like this gulf that's fixed between the two, dip his finger in the water and put it on my tongue because of my fiery torment. So he felt feels pain it's fiery pain and he's in torments now this abraham's bosom is where all old testament believers went when they died when jesus died on the cross we're told that he went to sheol and he announced the completion of the payment for sin because another compartment of of uh, sheol is the one below on the on the right as you look at it tartarus which is where which is a place of deep darkness, where a specified group of fallen angels, these are the fallen angels from uh, the Genesis six episode, the sons of God, who uh, took human wives and perverted the bloodline of the human race, they are locked down in Tartarus, according to second Peter two four until their final judgment, so Jesus appears to them and announces that sin has been paid for redemption has been accomplished. And then he took the Old Testament believers with him to heaven. So the paradise shifted from being a location in Sheol to being in heaven. So that today, when a person goes to Hades, which is the Greek term for Sheol, when a person goes to Hades, they are going to this place of temporary torments, the holding cell until they are eventually brought to judgment at the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom. So this is the word Hades. Now, uh, So two of the words that we need to clarify, first of all, hell, that hell is a bad word to use for a translation of anything, because in the Bible, it's not consistent. The Old Testament refers exclusively to Sheol, but in the New Testament refers to Gehenna and also to Hades. And so we have to distinguish hell, Hades and Sheol, which refer to the today, to the place where unbelievers go when they die and to the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 14, which I read this morning, we read, And death and hell, that's Hades, death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This occurs at the great white throne judgment. So this tells us that Hades is a totally different location, a totally different place than the lake of fire. So we have to keep that that distinguished. Now, when we look at some of the arguments, some of the issues that are raised about this whole issue of, of the, the lake of fire and eternal judgment, uh, we have to understand that what, what some of these arguments are, and they usually start with their view of the essence of God. Now, I understand that for a lot of people, it's very difficult to understand how the love of God and the justice of God are compatible. And this is what we see exemplified in these particular statements that I'm going to show you, because when you come out of a culture that has a, 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 an anemic view of love or an erroneous view of love, and you read that idea into the Bible, then you're going to end up having problems. If you come out of a culture that has a, an anemic view of justice, uh, then you're also going to have problems. Because what happens with these different theologians who have expressed these views is that they ultimately have difficulty understanding how the love of God and the righteousness of God and the justice of God are compatible. But we'll address that when we get there. So the first quote I have here is from Michael Green. Uh, He's a Brett. He is, uh, has written a number of different books. He's fairly orthodox in his theology in most areas that I'm aware of. I would not, uh, he's, he's a little charismatic in some areas. I would disagree with him there. But this guy's basically a good, solid, mainstream, orthodox, uh, orthodox, uh, evangelical. However, he's rejected the idea of unending punishment and he is an annihilationist. And this is his argument that comes from his book, Evangelism Through the Local Church. He has a chapter dealing with the, uh, dealing with ultimate judgment for the unbeliever. And he writes, what sort of God would he be who could rejoice eternally in heaven with the saved while downstairs the cries of the lost Make an agonizing cacophony. Green answers his own question. He says, such a God is not the person revealed in Scripture as utterly just and utterly loving. Green labels this traditional view of hell a doctrine of savagery. Now that's his view. Now this is from an evangelical that's fairly orthodox. The second quote I have here is from a liberal Anglican theologian by the name of John A.T. Robinson. Very, very liberal. And he wrote, Christ in Origen's old words remains on the cross so long as one sinner remains in hell. Origen was an early church father who believed in universalism. He goes on to say, That is not speculation. It is a statement grounded in the very necessity of God's nature. See, he's trying to ground his argument in the essence of God. He says, in a universe of love, there can be no heaven which tolerates a chamber of horrors, no hell for any which does not at the same time make it hell for God. What they're basically doing is starting with a limited, anemic, non-biblical definition of love, justice, and righteousness, and then read that into the Scripture, God doesn't fit their concept of love, so therefore, this, he can't be a God who would send his cre- creatures to an eternity in the lake of fire. When we look at scripture, we see the essence of God. God is sovereign, he's righteousness, he's justice, he's love, he's eternal life, he knows all the knowable, he's omniscient, He is present to everything in his creation. He's omnipresent. He is able to do all which he desires to do. He's omnipotent. He is absolute truth, and he is immutable. Now, when we talk about the integrity of God, we focus on four of these attributes, his righteousness, his love, his justice, and truth. Scripture in the Old Testament often links these four together. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, and love and truth go forth from it. Righteousness refers to the absolute standard of God's character. God is, as the Apostle John writes in 1 John, He is light in whom there is no darkness at all. God can have no fellowship, no relationship with any creature that does not measure up to his standard of perfect righteousness. And that's not an arbitrary decision. That is in the nature of reality. Remember, reality is defined by who God is and what God says. It's not defined by our experience. This is part of the problem with the way these theologians approach this, is that they're approaching it without looking at what the Scripture says first and foremost. And so we look at this, we see that within the character of God, He is perfectly loving. Therefore, whatever He does is a definition of love. If your definition or my definition of love has problems with what God does, then it's our definition that's wrong, not God. We don't tweak the character of God or what He says in Scripture to fit our preconceived notion of love. God is there to teach us what true love is what it, and what righteousness is. And in many ways, there are things that happen in Scripture that do not fit with a modern man's conception of that which is, which is righteous. And so we have the other approach, which is that of John R. Stott, a noted evangelical who went to be with the Lord a few years ago, also British, very Reformed. And among the arguments he used against uh, an everlasting uh, punishment in the lake of fire is the argument dealing with justice, talking about God's justice. He said, God's justice implies that the penalty inflicted will be commensurate with the evil done. Now, what we have to understand here is the nature of God's, the nature of God's justice. And when we look at his statement, there are several problems. First of all, one of the problems that we see in what he writes is that his his assumption is that our eternal destiny is determined by personal sins. I don't have that part in the quote, but that's what he states, is that uh, he says that eternal conscious torment is seriously disproportionate to sins consciously committed in time. So what's the problem there? You all should know this. is that we are not sent to the lake of fire for our personal sins. We are not condemned for personal sins. We are condemned because of Adam's original sin. We are born dead in our trespasses and sins. We're, we sin because we're a sinner. We're not a sinner because we sin. Think about that. That'll be a good topic of conversation uh, around lunch today. We sin because we are sinners. We're born spiritually dead. We're born corrupt already. And a personal sin is the result of that. So we're born already spiritually dead, already, already corrupt. This is a basic problem. Many people have, pro- have difficulty understanding is that a person is not sent to the lake of fire because of what they've done. They've sent to the lake of fire because they're spiritually dead and they're unrighteous. They're born that way, and they do not avail themselves of God's solution to their problem. But Christ paid the penalty for sins. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that God, because of Christ, is no longer imputing sins to the world. That's not the issue at all. We'll look at it, break it down a little bit more as we go Go a little further. So one problem he ha- has, and this is typical of many of them, is that they they really do and have a weak view of sin, and so if they base our condemnation on our individual sins, then they think, well, this condemnation really doesn't fit 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 the crime. This is the problem that many people have. This is, I think, the problem that Lucifer had at the very beginning. When he disobeyed God, he's thinking, well, the creature can act independently of God. Why such a big deal? How can this eternal, unending punishment fit the crime? And God says, let me show you. And so he sets up this test case. He creates the earth and puts Adam and Eve on the earth reestablishes everything on the earth after the judgment, original judgment by Satan, recreates the earth, puts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and says oh, everything's perfect. Every The environment is perfect. I don't mean everything is flawless. I mean uh, uh, that everything is righteous, but everything is as God intended it. There's no sin. Adam and Eve are created in a state of righteousness in the image and likeness of God, untarnished by sin. They're given a test. The test is the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat of anything in the garden. Everything is good to eat, except for this one tree. The instant you eat of it, you will certainly die. That was the punishment. So when they ate of that tree, they died, and there were consequences to that act of disobedience. Now, if I were to ask you, I say this so many times, if I were to ask you to list what you think are the worst sins a person can perform, Eating a piece of fruit would not be one of them. But as an act of disobedience to God, it set up a chain reaction of unintended consequences that reverberates through all of the universe and changes the fabric of God's creation. Everything is corrupt. Everything is corrupt. And they both die spiritually and are separated uh, from God and this is such a serious and heinous thing that the only way it can be solved the only solution is that God send his son to die on the cross to bear in his own perfect body in his divine perfection to bear the judgment for our sin that tells you just a little bit about how serious that sin is But then if you think about it a little more, you realize that all of the hunger, all of the famine, all of the violence, all of the criminality, all of the wars, all of the disease, all the pestilence, all of the horrible things that have happened in human history, all of the horrible things that have happened in your life are the result of the fact that Adam ate a piece of fruit. What God is demonstrating to Satan is that while the crime may not look serious, Its consequences are incredibly serious and far beyond anything that we can ever, ever imagine. And so, as a result of that, as a result of that, there must be punishment that is commensurate with the crime. And the crime is against God, right? It's not against anybody else. It's a crime against the infinite, righteous, and holy God. Therefore, the, the, the nature of sin has an infinite quality to it because it is against an infinite God. And therefore, it requires an infinite or eternal punishment. Now, for sake of time, I'm not going to go through uh, all these events in detail, but let's just think a little bit about the justice of God and how it is displayed in numerous events in the Old Testament. The first example we can think of is at the flood of Noah. At the flood of Noah, all, God says all of men, all the human race, except for, except for Noah and his family, all the human race, their thoughts are evil continuously. And what's the judgment? He's going to kill every air-breathing creature. Not just every human being, but every air-breathing creature, excluding the fish of the sea, through a worldwide flood. Now, a lot of people would say, well, that seems like that's a little extreme. Second example, when God brought judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, he sent the angels to warn Lot and his family and told them that um, when they left, that he would give them an opportunity to leave, and he said, "Escape." Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, lest you be swept away. So God warned him, don't look behind you or you will be swept away. So what does Lot's wife do? She turns around and looks back and instantly God is true to his word. And she's turned into a pillar of salt. Instantly. God recognizes the horror of sin, which we don't. So part of the problem here is we don't have a robust enough concept of the horrors of sin. Then we have a situation of priestly rebellion against Moses with uh, two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and uh, Abihu. And they brought unauthorized fire into the tabernacle for the burnt offering. And instantly, God took their life. He's making a point. Even the least infraction. You can't worship the way you want to. You can't worship because you think your fire is better than somebody else's fire. No, you have to do it God's way or or you're dead. At the example at Ai, after the wonderful victory the Israelites had at at Jericho, God told them, do not take any plunder. One guy did. His name was was, uh, Achan. And he hid his plunder underneath his tent. So the next battle came at Ai because there was sin in the camp. They sent out 3,000 troops, 36 were killed, and everybody screamed, woe is me, and uh, went into a panic because they expected that God would give them victory, and he didn't. They went through this this uh, series of, of events to isolate who the sinner was, and Achan was revealed as the one who had violated God's command. And he recognized that, confessed his sin, but then God said, nevertheless, there will be a punishment. Achan and all of his family were to die, and they all died. They were all executed. Again and again and again, we see that God has a much higher level of seriousness about sin than we do. We want to rationalize it, justify it. It's not really that bad. God is constantly lowering the boom on sin. We get another event with Uzzah as David is bringing the ark into Jerusalem uh, as they're uh, carrying the Carrying the ark, or they have the ark on a on a cart instead of carrying it the proper way, and the wheels hit a bump in the road, and the ark is jostled, and it looks like it's going to fall over. And Uzzah reaches his hand out to stabilize God, can't stabilize God. He touches the ark, and instantly dies. We get, and this isn't just an Old Testament thing. And get into the New Testament, and in Acts chapter five, we hear of Ananias and Sapphira who lie to the Holy Spirit, and when Peter exposes that, each of them in turn dies instantly, expresses the seriousness of sin. Thomas Aquinas, I don't quote him much, I got my master's degree in Thomistic philosophy, but he makes an interesting and accurate assessment of this. He said, sin is an attack on the infinite and holy character of God. God, therefore, sets the penalties for sin in this world and the next. Sin is against God, is what he's saying. God is the one who determines what a just punishment is. No one else can do that. He says he justly condemns sinners for Adam's sin and for their own, and he plainly teaches that he punishes the wicked forever. Certainly God is just in doing so. The reality is the magnitude of eternal condemnation does indeed fit the crime. So what are some of the scriptural passages? Matthew 25, 41, and 46. This is a passage we looked at already. When Jesus consigns the goats to the lake of fire, he says, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire. The word there is ionios, which applies to fire here, and we're going to see in a minute that in verse 46, that it also applies to punishment and eternal life. So if Ionios is the adjective defining eternal life for the sheep, and it means forever and ever and unending life, then it must also in context refer to forever and ever unending punishment and forever and ever unending fire. Has to have the same meaning because they are contrasted with one another. And so you have to contrast apples with apples, and that means that in each usage it means never ending. So he says in verse 46, these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. Now, what's the basis for their going into one or the other? Faith in Christ. That's it. That's the only basis. So we're saved by faith. We're saved by grace. We're saved not by works that we do, but because Christ paid the penalty for sin. Revelation 14, 9 and 10. Towards the end of the tribulation, John sees a third angel flying through heaven, and he says with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image, as if you take the mark of the beast, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. That's picturesque language for saying God is going to judge him and he will experience the, the full force of the wrath of heaven, the judicial force of God upon his life. It is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation, He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. This is talking about tribulation unbelievers who take the mark of the beast. They are tormented in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb forever and ever. Revelation 20.10, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, it is true that the word ionias just like its uh, Hebrew counterpart may not refer to never something that's never ending. It may refer to something that just lasts to the end of an age or the end of a period. But when we look at how this is used in context and the Greek language here, it starts with the preposition ace, which is a preposition of direction, and it expresses the end goal of something. It is to the ages of the ages. You can't say eternity any other way in Greek. It, it uses Ionias twice, for, meaning forever and ever. 2 Thessalonians one nine said, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction, Ionios again, from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Revelation 20 verse 14 says, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life is cast into the lake of fire. See, the lake of fire is distinct from Hades. So that is the future location of that punishment then in revelation 17:8 and 11 talking about uh the beast the antichrist the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out uh, excuse me this isn't talking about the antichrist the beast that you saw was and is not this is the kingdom uh at the end the babylonian kingdom uh the beast and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition those who dwell in the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the earth. These are unbelievers of the tribulation period, they'll marvel at the destruction of the beast, this end time kingdom, when they see that the beast was and is not and yet is. Verse eleven, the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth, and is of the seven, and is going to perdition. Now this word perdition is the same word used in John three sixteen for perishing. And it doesn't simply refer to destruction. This is the argument some say see. This word apaleo means destruction. It doesn't mean never-ending punishment. It means they're just going to be obliterated. No, when you look at these passages and compare them, this is perdition describes the destiny of those in the lake of fire. God does not want any to perish. Ezekiel 18.32 God says, for I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, therefore turn and live. Throughout history, it's a constant story. God is offering opportunities to the lost to turn to Him and to be saved, to be rescued from eternal condemnation. 1 Timothy 2, 4 says, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That should be our attitude. We desire all men to be saved, but they don't hear. How shall they hear without a preacher? And how uh, shall they, uh, the preacher go without a message? We have to proclaim the gospel. It's not just going to happen because God wants it to happen. So we have to understand the message, though. Why do people go to the lake of fire? They go to the lake of fire because they are born condemned. John 3.18, he who believes in him is not condemned but he who does not believe is condemned already. We're born condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides, indicating continual action on him. So as we close out this morning, I have one other question. I only got through one of them. I want to deal again next time with this issue of degrees of punishment in the lake of fire and what that is based upon. This is not always clear, and I will make it clear next week. But the gospel is clear, which is simply to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to think through these things, as unpleasant as they may be, it's that very unpleasantness that should spur us to our desire to express the gospel, to proclaim the gospel to all who are lost, to rescue the perishing, as the hymn says, to recognize that they are destined for an eternity of immeasurable misery and pain, separated from you forever and ever in torments that we cannot imagine because of their unrighteousness and because they are have, because they are sinful and because they have rejected you now father we pray that you would challenge anyone who's listening to this message to come to an understanding of the gospel it's a free gift it's a free gift a free opportunity to trust in christ You don't have to do anything, change anything. Simply trust in Jesus Christ as the one who paid the penalty for your sins. We're all sinners. Our sin has been paid for. We have to trust in Him. And when we do, then you give us new life and you give us perfect righteousness. And because we have perfect righteousness and a new life, we can then come into heaven. Our sins are already paid for and we have forgiveness. But we have to accept that so that we might be born again with new life and might receive the perfect righteousness without which no one can be in your presence. Father, we pray that you might use this to stimulate us in our desire to witness to the lost because we have a fresh appreciation of what that means. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.